Father, I'm grateful that we are gathered here this morning to worship you. And I pray that you would well up in our hearts joy that we have been made alive in Christ. And then, Lord, that you would empower us and inform us and motivate us and equip us to walk out the callings that you have sovereignly assigned each one of us. Lord, I'm, I'm acutely aware, especially today, of my total inadequacy to share what you have here without the empowering presence of the Spirit. So, Spirit, would you open our eyes, show us what's in the text, make us to feel the weight of it, and then change us by it, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. There are people who say, and it makes me scratch my bald head, that the Bible is just far removed from everyday life, and that it's not really practical for, again, day-to-day -day life. And when people say that kind of thing, it makes me wonder, have they actually ever read the Bible for themselves? And specifically, chapters 5 through 7 in 1 Corinthians, where Paul was addressing sex-crazed first-century Corinth. He may as well be writing directly to sex-crazed 21st-century America. In fact, the Scriptures are for all of us, and so in a, in a way he is. Now, what we need to understand is Satan absolutely hates the gift of human sexual intimacy. He hates it. So one of the things that he loves to do with God's good gifts like sex is he wants to twist it, to entice us to twist it, either through abusing that gift or not using that gift at all, appropriately. In other words, through excess or ignoring. And I believe that the enemy wants to get as many non-married people to have as much sexual relations as possible in order to have as many married people to have the least amount of sexual relations as possible through guilt and shame and boredom and regret and all the rest. As I said last week from the text of 1 Corinthians 6, that sexual sin is particularly self-destructing to the human psyche. And we've been looking at that, again, chapters 5 and 6. And, and the bottom line is, all sexual relations outside the context of one man, one woman, holy, united, covenantal matrimony, everything outside of that is sin. may not be politically correct, popular, or palatable to say, but it is what it is. Well, this morning, we're going to turn to a chapter that focuses in and dials in on marriage, calling, and singleness. We're going to spend three weeks in this chapter. But here's a crucial point. Before we apply this text to us today, we have to understand what it would have meant to the first century audience. And we must make sure that we, we, we look at this text in the overall balance and sway of Scripture. Because if we eisegete this text and isolate it from the rest of the Bible, we're going to teach some really crazy things from this chapter. Such as, Paul, he has a really bad view of marriage. And the only reason people would ever get 
hooked up together in marriage is because they just have to have an outlet for their physical, human, sexual needs. Now, this is not what that text is saying. The Bible paints a glorious picture of marriage from cover to cover, right? Genesis, you see the first marriage divinely orchestrated. Paul, even himself in Ephesians 5, talks about the beauty of marriage and how it images the gospel. And way at the end of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say come. So God has a high view of marriage. Paul does as well. In fact, and, and this was kind of, in, I just recently discovered this. How many people here, let me take a vote, would say Paul was single his whole life? Raise your hand. How many would say Paul was married? How many did not vote? I'm going to call you out, okay? Now listen, I would have put myself in the group of people who said Paul was single, but I actually think he was married. Now, I didn't come up with this. This is reading commentaries and the like. Two reasons. Number one, you remember in Philippians, Paul gives his resume of his Jewishness, how he maxed out to the nth degree, tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day and all the rest. He was, he was the, uh, the Jewish man of Jewish men, right? But in, Jewish, in the Jewish faith, if you were going to be one who was considered highly orthodox and faithful, you had to be married. Now, that may not be strong enough for you, but the second proof may be. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, Paul, talking about his past life before he met Jesus, recounts how he cast a vote as a member of the Sanhedrin to have Christians executed. You say, well, how's that relevant to the topic at hand? This. Do you know to be part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, you actually had to be a married man? So the indication is Paul was actually married at some point, and he's writing by Holy Spirit from experience. You say, what happened to his wife? You'll have to ask him in glory. Maybe she died. Maybe she departed when he became one of those crazy Christians. It's, it's hard to say. Now, Paul does say, and just trying to give you the overall context for the next three weeks, he does say in verse 7 that he does wish all were like him. And at this point, he is single. But he also is telling that in, in, in the context of what he says in verse 26 to be this present distress. Now, that's going to be very relevant for two weeks from now, a particular situation that he's writing into, a present distress. But he also says in verse 8 that both singleness and marriage is a charisma. That means gift of grace by the Holy Spirit. Marriage is a gift. In fact, he goes on to say in this chapter that both are better. Huh? How can two different things be better? Better for those who have the gift. If you have the gift of marriage, then marriage is better for you. If you have the good gift of singleness, then guess what's better for you? Singleness. It's according to your gift. And you say, well, I, I want to know more about this. We're going to come back to the singlehood part in two weeks, and we're going to talk about seizing your singleness. All I'm trying to do is set the context. And really the key question for this chapter is, how can I serve God optimally and maximally, the best, as a single person or as a married person? 
Now that brings us to our immediate text today, verses 1 through 16. Now, I know I'm belaboring, setting up the context, but this is a very complex chapter, and I want to reduce it to its simplest teaching if I can. Paul has been laboring, has he not, in chapters 5 and 6 to tell single people, don't live as if you're married because you're not. You're single. But now he wants to tell married people, do not live as if you were single if you're married. Nobody gets married to be single. And again, he's trying to move the church at Corinth and us today away from two ditches. The one ditch is all sex is good. And the other ditch is all sex is bad. See, apparently there was somebody coming into the church, this is a little bit more of context, who were saying, listen, when you become a Christian, you literally stop having sexual intimacy with your spouse, your married partner. They had these things called spiritual marriages because, after all, this is bad stuff, so we won't, we won't be together like that. And some were even taken to the next level, and they're saying not only should you not sleep with your married spouse, you should, in fact, divorce them so that you can focus on serving the Lord. That's the context, all right? So here's the big idea today. It's got two heads to it. Married, sleep together, and stay together. Sleep together and stay together. You don't need no Greek to understand that, right? So sleep together falls under verses 1 through 9. Remember, there were people teaching some pretty twisted things. Let's, let's pick, up, pick up in verse 1. Now, he says, concerning the matters about which you wrote. Remember, people were telling him that there's some really crazy stuff was going on in the church at Corinth. Do you remember quotation marks last week in certain phrases? He's putting quotation marks in the next phrase because somebody was saying this. They were saying, this is the matter about which they wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul receives that, and now he wants to address that. Now, what is, what is his answer? His answer sure, most assuredly would be, well, yeah, if they're not married then it would be good for a man not to touch a woman, which is what the literal, literal Greek idea is translated here. But he goes on to say, but because of the temptation to what? Sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her husband. He says, basically, if you know, the, the word sexual immorality, immorality there is that junk drawer word for sexual immorality, Pornea includes all, all forms of sexual immorality, including porn, frankly. Guys, oh, and gals too, includes all of that. And when he's saying, because of that, because of what he talks about in verse 2, he's doing two things. He's again affirming biblical marriage, one man, one woman covenant. But he's also doing this. Can you handle this? Again, people who've never read the Bible say it doesn't apply to everyday life. I, I, they've never read the Bible. He's being realistic right here, is he not? Paul is a realist, and so he says, hey, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You ought to sleep together. 
not sleeping together is what he's saying is what makes people more vulnerable to pornea, to some form of sexual immorality. Now, again, don't take this out of context, right? He's definitely not saying that's the only reason that God has gifted humanity with sexual intimacy. There's procreation. There's pleasure. There's a picture that it gives. There is, there is the growth of intimacy and, and bonding between a man and woman. There's a whole lot more than that, but, but he's just being a realist. Now, I want to read verses 3 and 4. Some people have, have the audacity to say, Paul is a misogynist. You should just read some of the things that he writes about. Well, verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her what? Conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. People say, Paul was such a misogynist. They haven't read this, have they? Do you see the equivalency here? The symmetry that's right here? He says, he actually starts with the wife, does he not? He says in verse 3, the husband should give to who? His wife, her conjugal rights. And then he says, likewise, the wife, the wife to her husband. Paul is not, not being misogynistic. And, and, and what he's actually saying is quite radical when he says, now, husbands, make sure you give what your wife needs and wife gives what your husband needs. He's being quite radical because this was a highly patriarchal society. And, and by the way, 21st century America, there is a healthy patriarchy. God has assigned the man the role of leadership in the family. But we're not talking about healthy patriarchy. We're talking about a twisted patriarchy in which men were everything and women were nothing. And Paul is speaking into that context, and he actually says in verse 4, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. So he doesn't co-sign that fallen line of thinking that says there's an inequality between men and women, one is property and, and all that trash. He's not, are you all with me? Now, while men in general have a higher sex drive than a woman would, he is simply highlighting the mutual obligation of marriage. And that's why verse 3 each should give to each other their conjugal rights. And again, we have kids in here, so I'm, I think you understand what he's saying when he says conjugal rights, right? Everybody's slight nod, okay, all right, good. And, and let me give you a, another footnote here. This verse, and these verses, gives men no footing to manipulate their wife to do something that would be against her conscience and harmful to her walk with Jesus. And so there obviously needs to be great sensitivity in these matters and a lot of communication. The word conjugal doesn't carry the weight and freight of, you better give it to me. Rather, it carries the weight and freight of, in the words of Paul Barnett, I've quoted him a lot, he has such a great commentary, he puts it this way, how can I serve my spouse and all things, including, including sexually. That, that's, that's what he's talking about. And so given the wider nature of this church gathering group this morning, I, that's all I'm going to say. He is saying, what's his big idea? What's he telling them? Married, sleep together. And, 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 and I, just another footnote. 
I don't think he's reducing it just to, how can I put this? Just to the physical aspect of this, okay? I, I, I really don't. I think he's packing into all of that the relational intimacy, the warmth, the bonding, the care, the closeness, all of that that goes into healthy sexual relations in a biblical marriage. You with me? Now, Paul is so serious about this. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by what? By agreement. So, there's, so when, there's, when there's a period of abstinence, there's, there's three conditions there. First of all, for, um, by agreement, which if there's agreement, then what was there there as well? Communication, right? So there needs to be communication again about these matters. And that's why when, it, when we do premarital counseling, we, we dive appropriately into this topic just a bit. By agreement, and then he goes on to say, for what kind of time? For a limited time. In other words, there is communication, there's agreement, and it's brief. Well, what does brief mean? He doesn't give us an exact time, okay? Brief will vary according to season. Maybe one of them's in the military and they're deployed. That's an assigned time of abstinence, right? Maybe there's sickness, um, seasons as they age. So there's variables, but the point is it, it, it's brief. There's communication, it's by agreement, it's brief. And then there's this, which I don't think most couples probably think about. That you may devote yourself to prayer. In other words, the purpose of that abstinence, it has spiritual ends in mind. Like maybe maybe a crisis hit you or a crisis hit your family, and man, we just need to give ourselves, our focus is now dealing with this in prayer. But it has spiritual ends in mind. And then verse 5, the latter part of verse 5, he says this, but then do what? Come together again, okay, re-engage sexual intimacy so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You might want to draw an arrow from verse 2 to 5b. Same idea, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, Paul is being a realist here, isn't he? And, and let me add this. He's not even doing so for our comfort, okay? Like, this, is, this really ultimately isn't about us. It's about the glory of God. Stephen Um said, the greater end of sexual pleasure in marriage is to live a life pleasing to God. And God is just being realistic with how we are wired by him. Now, it goes without saying that if anyone is prone to twist these verses, you cannot do that. Here's how it can be twisted. Maybe you're in a cold season in your marriage. We all have seasons. Or maybe you're right now in a cold marriage. That is never an excuse to say, well, Scripture says we need to come together lest we be tempted. And since we haven't come together, you, she says to him, you, you don't give me any attention. He says to her, we're not sleeping together, whatever. It's never an excuse to say, well, I guess I'll just go satisfy those desires on the side, right? Because the Bible's very clear about that, is it not? He's being realistic, but God, who's being realistic, also gives you grace for those tough seasons. 
The same grace he gives for celibacy to a single, he will give to a married person as appropriate. Now, verses 6 through 9, Paul does, this is a transition point here, make it clear his personal preference for singleness. He's clear about that. And he's clear that about that because, again, of verse 26, this present distress. Again, we'll hit that in two weeks. And because you just have more time, you do have more time to serve the Lord. But notice how he puts it. He says, now as a concession, not a what? A command. I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Commands are to be obeyed, right? And if you've read any of the Pauline epistles, you know Paul has no problem giving commands. He gives a lot of them. But this is a concession. In other words, this is advice. What do you do with godly advice? You weigh it out, right? And you apply it as appropriate with wisdom and discernment and discretion by the Holy Spirit. He makes the point again, as I, as I highlighted by way of introduction, that both are gifts. And, he, and, and again, he's a realist. He says in verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul Barnett again says, it's better to marry than to be tortured with unsatisfied desires. And in time, somebody will know whether or not they have the gift of marriage or the gift of single. Now, that kind of desire is different than someone, a single person, who sees a married couple going out to dinner and say, boy, it'd be great to you know, have, have a spouse to eat dinner with. I mean, fleeting desires like that is different than the language here, a burning passion, not just for the physical intimacy, but for the intimacy altogether that the marriage relationship affords. Now, that's not the only reason to get married. Again, context, but it is a reason. And when he says it is good not to marry, he's not saying it is bad to marry, <laughs> okay, because of the rest of the chapter. But closing out this first point, hopefully dealing with this delicately but with a degree of accuracy and understanding, he is saying married people do what? Sleep together. All right. Now, here's the second part. Married people stay together. This is verses 10 through 16. I want to reiterate what I said earlier, that some false teachers or misguided Christians were saying, hey, when you become a Christian, you shouldn't sleep with your spouse. And again, some were even saying, divorce them, especially if they're not Christians like you are. You become a Christian, they don't divorce them. Leave them. Next week, John Glandon's going to preach the middle part of this text where he dials in on this idea of calling and blooming where you're planted. Obedience is a bigger deal than option. Now, there are several scenarios here, and this is where you're going to have to summon the caffeine from the coffee you drank this morning, okay? But I want us as a church to understand this text so that we can obey God in this matter. There are two, there are actually three different scenarios. Scenario number one Paul is addressing is this. Both people are believers in this marriage. Some were saying, hey, even though you're both believers, you got to get unhooked because this marriage is just going to take your time and the time is short you need to spend all your energy serving the Lord, so you need to split up. Now listen to what Paul says about that in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And all he's saying with that is, I'm going to tell you what Jesus explicitly said about this matter. 
Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels, that a man and a woman shall leave their family and do what? Cleave together. And he says, what God has joined together, let no man divide asunder, right? Old version puts it that way. He's, he's referencing that. So he goes on to say, the wife should not separate from her husband. And then dropping down to verse 11, that latter half, the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul is saying, listen, God is against divorce, period. You say there's a few exceptions? There are. We'll get to that. But let me tell you what is not an exception in God's book. Irreconcilable differences. I don't think you'll find that there. We just grew apart. I don't think you'll find that there. We fell out of love. I don't think you'll find that there. He is saying it is for life. You stay together. You stay together. God is against divorce. And against a, a few, with the exception, I should say, of a few scenarios, which I'll, I'll briefly summarize later, every divorce, I just have to be a faithful pastor, is an expression of rebellion against God and his design for your marriage. So it's so important that he says in verse 11, front part of verse 11, but if she does, in other words, separate or divorce, it's the same idea here in the text, she should remain unmarried or else what? Be reconciled to her husband. What God is saying is, if such a person persists in a divorce, which I don't sanction, then that person must remain divorced or else be reconciled. In other words, what he's saying is, one step of disobedience does not justify a second step of disobedience. So, Stay together. Is that clear? You might need to go back and listen to this message again or, or read this text. But now we're going to go to scenario number two. Scenario number two is this. There's a couple. One becomes a Christian. People were becoming Christians. There was revival in this pagan hotbed of Corinth. One person comes a Christian, and they were told, again, you ought to divorce your spouse so you can focus on the Lord, especially if your spouse doesn't turn to Christ like you do, then you ought to definitely get divorced. This is what he says, verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. Now, that trips some people up. Like, what's Paul saying? Is this not inspired? No, no. All Paul is saying is, to the best of my rec uh, recollection, Jesus never specifically addressed that particular application between a believer and a non-believer, and somebody saying they want to get divorced. But I'm just going to apply this universal abiding truth. He doesn't want divorce. So he's making a, a sound application of what Jesus taught in the Gospels. And he says this, that if any brother has a wife who is what? An unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul, again, is not saying that's not inspired. He's just saying, I'm not aware where Jesus addressed that, that situation specifically, where one spouse becomes a Christian, the other uh, does not, but they, but, and they say on that basis, I want to go. 
So all he's doing is expanding on Jesus' teaching. And again, there, there is this symmetry here. He says, husband, don't leave wife, and wife, don't leave husband. There's this ongoing symmetry in how he puts it. Now remember, and I know I'm just trying to give you the context, because this can be very confusing. Some were saying, you're a Christian now. He's not. You ought to leave him. Because you're holy now. Some of them were probably saying, you're holy. Aren't we called saints? And if they're not a Christian, what does that mean that they are? They're unholy. And so they're going to defile you. No doubt they were trying to use that false logic to get people to separate. But Paul in verse 14 actually says quite the opposite. Look at how he puts it. Verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made what? Holy because of his, of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made what? Holy because of her husband. Now, here's what it's not saying. Is that saying that if you have a person who is a Christian in a marriage and a person who's not a Christian, that just some, like, but like catching COVID-19 or some kind of virus, that they're going to catch Christianity and become a Christian automatically and holy? He's not saying that. All he's saying is, listen, family, even though that person is not a believer, the marriage is still holy. In fact, and the world needs to know this, it doesn't matter if it's a marriage between two pagans, that marriage is holy. Why? Because God, because marriage was God's design, right? Marriage was God's invention, right? And so that's all he's really trying to say. And what's more, he's probably indicating that in that kind of context, there is gospel exposure for that spouse, right? Because now they have somebody in their household that's filled by the Spirit who loves Jesus walking with God. And, and your kids, likewise, receive that same gospel spillover exposure effect. I think that's what he's getting at when he says, otherwise your children would be unclean. But they're not. But as it is, they're holy. In other words, they're set apart for gospel exposure. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm just, just fire hose coming out this morning. I'm just trying to make this as clear as I can. Now, of course, a marriage between a believer and a non-believer is far from optimal. Can we be realistic there? And that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that you shouldn't get yoked up together that way. For what fellowship does light have with darkness, right? Or what concord does Christ have with Belial? Do, Belial, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Now you have people saying, well, that's not really what he meant. I, I, that's a fair application of that. But in God's grace, sometimes they get, people get married, they're not Christians, and, and then they become a Christian, or maybe they made a bad decision saying, oh, I need to get out of it. God says, no. You remain married together. Because divorce, I don't care whether they're believers or non-believers, divorce leaves three things in its wake. You know what that is? Wreckage. Wreckage. And more wreckage. And a society that fails to take marriage seriously is a society that unravels. You don't need me to give illustrations of that, do you? So stay together. And even the healthiest divorced families, there's grace, but I want to be faithful. Even the healthiest divorced families have a measure of dysfunctionality. I mean, the holidays, for instance, what do we do, right? Who comes, right? And I'm just, I'm just being real. So stay together. Bottom line, 
Divorce is simply out of bounds for a believer. The experience of grace in Christ doesn't lower the standards. It actually raises the bar. Now, he gives us some clarifications, having made the case, sleep together and stay together, married couples. There's there's a few clarifications, and I'm going to give them, and then we're going to pray and sing and get out of here. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates it, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, there is a tip here that he's talking about a third situation and one that is entirely dissimilar from scenario one and scenario two. The but if tips you off, right? But if, he says. And here, it's not a believing spouse saying, I'm going to leave that unbeliever because they're an unbeliever. That was scenario two. No, it's a a flip here. Here, it's an unbeliever saying, I don't want to be living with any believer, one of those Christians. I'm out. And what he's teaching is this. If you become a Christian and your spouse does not, and your unbelieving spouse says, I, I didn't sign on for this, right? If after all your efforts, and let me emphasize that expression, after all your efforts to stop an unbelieving spouse from quitting your marriage, you are free to let them go and not to contest the divorce that they initiated against your wishes. Because it goes on, it says not enslaved, right? It says you are not enslaved. Then you have verse 16, which has two interpretations. I'm going to give both to you, but let me read it first. Or how do you know whether your wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, some read verse 16 as if they're saying, hey, stop that divorce. Don't sign the document. After all, how do you know that they won't what? Get saved. Yes, they've made it clear over a significant period of time, regularly, viscerally, that they hate you and they hate the God that you serve, but, you know, hang in there because they might just get saved. Now, that's one interpretation. But the other interpretation, which is probably, I think, the more accurate one, he's saying, hey, listen, don't let that truth keep you into something where they, 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 they consistently want to leave you and they're taking every step to do that and you fought against it. Because there is no assurance that they will be saved. How do you know that they will be, whether you will, that will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That's the ESV study Bible's interpretation. It's, it's a pretty wide one. It's the one I, I particularly hold. Um, I believe that first interpretation has put a lot of people under unnecessary and unbearable guilt and pain. It do, and really, the clincher for me is it does not sound like one for whom God has called to peace. Because that's what, it, that's what it says right there between those two verses, right? God has called you to peace. And so that's the scenario that, he is, that he's talking about. Now, here's a warning. I have heard cases of a Christian, and I'm going to put that word Christian in quotation marks because of what I'm about to say, who knows that they can't initiate a divorce because 
They don't, the, the conditions aren't there. And so what do they do to their unbelieving spouse? They act like an absolute jerk. Thinking, if I'm just a jerk enough, over time, he or she will say, well, I'm out. And I can say, well, I didn't initiate it. He or she did. I've heard of that. Now, here's a warning. That will be a terrible day for you on the day of judgment if you do that because you did not reflect the heart of God. You do not reflect the heart of the gospel. But in appropriate context, that is one of the three legitimate exceptions for divorce. There's three of them. I'm not going to take time to develop. I'm just giving to you. First of all, there is abandonment. That's what I just covered right here, right? An unbeliever persistent says, I want to get out. You can't keep them. You're not enslaved. You can be at peace. The second one is adultery, Matthew 19.9. Abandonment, adultery, and I, and I talk about three A's. The third one is abuse. Now, again, I would like you to read, if you're interested in exploring that, an article by Vadi Bakum in which he expands upon that and says basically abuse is to, equates to, over time, abandonment. And so in that sense, yes, um, and by the way, those are the only reasons a divorced person can get remarried. If you had a biblical divorce, abandonment, adultery, or abuse. There's only one other reason you can get remarried. You know what that is? Your ex-spouse dies. So don't do anything wrong, okay? But if you got divorced for one of those reasons, I'm just giving you what, what, what Scripture says, okay? Now, I know this has been a lot to digest, family, hasn't it? Like, I mean, it's been, my brain is just overheated teaching this this morning. It is a lot to digest. But what is the big idea of this message? Marriage, what? Sleep together and stay together. I know, I know that there are some under the sound of my voice. You have violated this. You violated this. Um, and, and you can't go back, right? You can't go back. It, it's not wrong to try and correct past wrongs by doing more wrong. All you add is more regret. And I, I would just say to you, I would just say to you, you can't go backward, but you can go forward and you go upward to the cross. You can go to Christ, and on the basis of 1 John chapter 1, you can confess your sins. He'll cleanse you. He shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And then after you confess it, you need to commit to your marriage. However you got there, even unbiblically, it's God's will that you stay there. How do you know it's the will of God to be married to that person? Look at the name on the marriage certificate, okay? So you, you confess to Christ, you commit to that marriage, and then you do this. You say, hey. I need community to walk out this relationship because relationships can be tough. And I just want to say to anybody who's really having a tough time, I want to acknowledge something that people so often don't want to acknowledge, that you can really have some tough struggles in marriage. It's real. He married you. You married him. You married her. I mean, come on. It's the two of you. What you expect? <laughs> and one's it, right? And marriage will be attended by incredible, sweet seasons of joy, and it's also some intense times of anguish. It, it, it's just true. It's true. 
And if you're in a tough spot right now, and you're tempted to throw in the towel and say, I can't do this anymore, I want you to look to the one who took a towel and washed the feet of people. I want you to look to the eternal God who in Christ, who did no wrong, stooped down to wash the feet of those who would do him much wrong, including denying him in his point of greatest crisis. And this is a God who not only washed the feet of those who did him wrong, he went to a cross. Not just to get the soil off their feet, but the sin out of their heart. And if that's you, if that's you, I just want to say, you who've done wrong in your marriage, and we all have, you can humble yourself. You can do, you humble yourself in this way. You, you can say, you can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I just really need your help. I'm way over my head right now. This is really tough. And then you need to go to your spouse and say, I, I, I really want to make this work. I want to make this work, and I want, and I am sorry, and ask for forgiveness. Where you need to ask for forgiveness. See, ask God for help in Christ. You you ask forgiveness of your spouse and say, let's let's make this work. Let's do what we got to do. And then you go to leadership. You go to somebody and say, I just we just need some counseling. We just need some help. Would you be there to help us? You might say, and people have said this, but my marriage is so dead. That's all right. God's got a great resume. And God can make dead things live. Because that's what he did with every believer here, right? You were dead in trespasses and sins, and he made you alive in Christ. So he most assuredly can renew and remake and rekindle and restore. He can renew that relationship. He can remake it into something that it never was even in your best days in the past. He can turn that relationship that was cheap box wine into Cabernet Sauvignon. He can make it good stuff over time. He can do that. He can, he can rekindle lost emotions and actually refire new emotions. He can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And some of you want that desperately. And you can have that as you turn into the one who took a towel, and then went to a cross to do a work of restoration in all who would turn to him. This is the word of God. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your mercy to us, for all that you've done for us, Lord. Um, I pray, God, for deep conviction for people who are decidedly, willfully, and without repentance not doing it your way, that they would be struck with a spirit of conviction. And then, Lord, I pray that the same spirit that would strike them in conviction would sweep through with encouragement for somebody who's struggling, but they really want things to work. They really want to bring you glory. They really want to do it right. I pray that couples would have those conversations about sleeping together and staying together in accordance with Scripture. I pray that this text would not be abused or misused by anybody. Your Scripture is for our help. It's not a club. And I pray, God, that you would do the miracle of making dead things live again. And lastly, I just want to pray for anybody here and anybody listening who, who is still dead. They've never been made alive in Christ. That they would turn to you 
confess their sin and receive life at the foot of the cross through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.